I've been enjoying our series, They Follow Jesus, and I hope you have too. Uh, we're in our final week this week. Yeah, today is, of course, Palm Sunday, celebrated by Christians as the day Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem only days later to humbly die on the cross for our sins. And of course, next Sunday, as we mentioned, is Easter Sunday, and I hope you have big plans uh, to worship God and to invite. Uh, we still need some bags of candy for our giant candy hunt, and we always have a whole bunch of fun out right after the service next Sunday morning. Uh, back on the back field, we'll have our giant candy hunt, and there'll be three different groups uh, for the kids so that they can go out and just have a great time uh, next Sunday. And so invite all your friends and everybody you know to come for Easter Sunday. We're going to have a great time together. Be praying about our Spanish ministry and uh, their Easter Sunday as well. Uh, they have changed their service time for uh, anybody you know who's interested in, in going to that ministry. They've changed their service time to 1 o'clock in the afternoon in their Spanish auditorium over in the other building. And so let people know about that and be praying for them. And also be thinking about after Easter Sunday, on April 8th, uh, we're starting a brand new series uh, called The Choice. And we are excited about the series. It also kicks off a special small group campaign that's going to run for the rest of the month of April and go in toward Mother's Day. And it's called uh, Fan or Follower. And so we're looking at that and looking at what God's going to do for that week. Well, here we are on this Palm Sunday morning and looking forward to what God's going to do for us and with us. And we've been in this series, They Follow Jesus. And we've walked through these growth steps that we emphasize here at Centennial because we believe that these were steps that are the process of biblical discipleship. And so we start the process by moving from the community to the crowd. And to do that, all you have to do is show up uh, one time and you move from the community to the crowd. And then we move from the crowd to the congregation. Last week we talked about moving from the congregation to the committed. And now today on Palm Sunday we're talking about moving from the committed to the core. And the core represents those who are completely sold out to God, who are spiritually on fire. But I have to warn you up front. Those who have committed their lives to Christ and care for him deeply still struggle with this final growth step in the discipleship process. Now, we never quite arrive on this because this step is when we take up the cross to follow him daily. And so let's get started this morning in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, and I'll read there, uh, starting in verse number 13, we'll read part of this passage as we get started this morning, it's such a, a beautiful passage. And uh, the first part of it is the foundation of the local church. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But our focus is on discipleship. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say that. Thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 
And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his, his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. So here they are. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, and they're standing in front of the massive rock face at Caesarea Philippi on the coast there of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asked his disciples, hey guys, what are people out there saying about me? All right, and, and you've seen these things on Facebook, right? Uh, I mean, this happens all the time, right? It says, uh, tell me what GIF makes you think of me. Now, how many of you know what a GIF is? Oh, man, I'm not dealing with a technological crowd here. Okay, so the GIF is, is this little picture, this little moving thing that's uh, from some cartoon or from some film or whatever. And it's, it's supposedly what it, uh, they want to know, what GIF makes you think of me? And people respond, and they put in all these things. And people ask this question all the time. What do people think of me? You remember in third grade, you said, hey, can you ask Betsy what she thinks of me? Right? Does she like me? And uh, can you ask Bart if he likes me? And uh, you got all these different things that you got going on. Uh, people are wondering about this. And Jesus even, now he's doing it for a, a real reason, but he asks, hey, what are they saying out there about me? And, and so uh, they filled him in. Some people think you're John the Baptist. And, and some people think you're Elijah, the prophet. And some people think you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus said, well, you think the people are right? Who do you say I am? And Peter, for once in his life, gave the absolutely correct answer. Now, it's so interesting to me. He didn't say, we believe you are the Messiah. He didn't say that. That would have been powerful, right? If he would have said, we believe you're the Messiah, that would have been powerful. But he said it as a certain fact. He said... Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus didn't back away from that. Not at all. Jesus didn't correct Peter for making him equal with God. No, he blessed him. And I want you to consider something about Jesus. Now, Jesus has been called a lot of different things by a lot of different people. 
And I think C.S. Lewis may have said it best. He said Jesus was one of three things. Either he was a liar who purposely manipulated people by telling them he was God. Or he was a lunatic who lived under the delusion that he was God. Or he was the Lord. The very son of God. And you choose whether to accept him as your savior or deny his sacrifice for your sins. There are really uh, only three logical choices about Jesus. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Now Peter stated as a fact, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. Right? Have you ever told a kid that? Like our daughter just turned five this week, and she says things. Sometimes you look at her, where did you hear that? And what I always think is funny is she says, I just made it up. Like, oh, you didn't just make that up. And, uh, and she makes stuff up, and she says stuff, and kids do that. Or where did you hear that from? And uh, especially when they say bad words, right? You know, where did you hear that from? Uh, I heard it from school or I, they don't want to tell you now if they're smart, they don't want to tell you that they heard it from the cartoons because then you shut the cartoons off, right? So, so they start to work the system. I don't know where I heard it. I just heard it somewhere. Or they say, sissy said it, right? And then you bring sissy in and there's an interrogation. There's waterboarding involved. It gets rough. Uh, but look, Jesus uh, is in this situation where he says to Peter, listen, you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. Now, it could only be revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood didn't teach you that. That can only come from the Father in heaven. Now, there was more to their conversation, but that's not our focus for today. And so I want to move down to verse number 21, and we're going to kind of fo focus in on this part as we develop our message. In verse 21, we read how Jesus started telling his disciples what would be happening very soon. He would go to Jerusalem. He would suffer persecution from the religious leaders there. He would be killed by the mob. And then he would be raised the third day. Well, this didn't sit well with his disciples, this talk of death. Because they really thought that Jesus, as the Messiah would be initiating his earthly reign, that he would free Israel from the dominion of the Roman Empire, that he would institute a world peace and prosperity, and now he's talking about being killed. And so Peter, the same person who had made the great spiritual declaration about Jesus in verse 16, began to rebuke Jesus. He told Jesus, you're wrong. You're not going to die. You're the Messiah. And Jesus, who had just earlier said, Blessed art thou, Simon, now says, Get thee behind me, Satan. But Simon Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. But he struggled with the most difficult step of discipleship. And I'm telling you, it's the same one we struggle with. And so let's talk about this step in four parts this morning. And we'll take it right from the passage. We talk first about things of God. Things of God. Look what he said again, verse 23. But he turned. 
You ever had somebody say something under their breath just behind you? And you turn like if you're one of your kids mouthed off to you or one of your kids in class, if you're a teacher, mouthed off to you. And you turn and you whip around. What did you say? Right? What did you say? But he turned. Now, Jesus didn't have to ask what did you say because he's Jesus. He knew what you said. He really did have eyes in the back of his head. Right? He really did know that you just rolled your eyes as you walked away. You know, mom doesn't always know that, and moms get duped a lot, especially by teenagers uh, who you kind of say, okay, mom, and then they walk off rolling their eyes. Sometimes moms see it and sometimes don't. And when the, uh, the kid thinks he got away with everything when, he, when mom didn't see it, but Jesus still saw it. So, so Jesus, he sees this, and he turns, and he said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. Now look what he said next. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So let's talk about things of God for just a minute here. Because it had been spiritually revealed by God, Peter's declaration that he made could not have been more powerful. It could not have been more reverent. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And can I tell you that nothing pleases God more than when we declare the truth about his son? When we savor the things of God, he's pleased. Jesus blessed Peter for his declaration. His declaration was the rock-solid truth that would become the foundation of the church. And upon the rock of Jesus being God, the church is built. There may have been a time in your life when you authentically came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you came to die on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I accept you into my life. And I'm telling you that in that moment, God could not have been more pleased. The angels in heaven rejoiced because saving faith is a thing of God. And for you to become a child of God, the father had to reveal to you that he loves you, and he wants you in his family through the sacrifice of Jesus. Sometimes I hear people say, maybe you've heard this before, they say, that was a God thing. You ever heard somebody say that? That was a God thing. You know what that means? That was something that only God can do. And for certain, only God could save a sinner like me and a sinner like you. Only God could love us when we were unlovely. Only God could forgive us for everything we've ever done and will ever do through Christ. And just like the declaration of Peter, your declaration of wanting Jesus in your life is a God thing. It's a miracle. But I'll tell you this, if you've never had this take place, I want you to know that God is calling you this morning. He's drawing you to himself. He loves you. He can't wait to rejoice about you making the choice to have Jesus as the Lord of your life. And so there are the things of God. But then if you noticed at the end of verse 23, there are also the things of men. And so that's our second part, things of men. Peter had the same difficulty that we do in distinguishing between fleshly desires 
and faith-filled desires. And he actually thought he was making a spiritual statement like he had done earlier. But he wasn't. He was now just making a Peter statement. He was speaking from his own plans to have Jesus become an earthly ruler. He was speaking from his own thoughts and his own impressions that were limited by his humanity. And he couldn't and he didn't see the big picture that Jesus had come to satisfy. And so Jesus harshly rebuked him for thinking that there could be a crown without a cross. You know, there's another apostle, Paul. And Paul thought he was serving God by imprisoning Christians. He thought he was serving God when he held the coats while the deacon Stephen was stoned to death. And then he met Jesus for real. And he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And his life was changed. And you look at what Jesus said to Peter. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? Now that might seem a little abrupt. Now you may be thinking that that just seems a little abrupt. And it's mostly because we live in the snowflake age. Right? Where if you say anything truthful to anybody... They hide under a blanket like for three weeks. Or they engineer a protest. One of the two. It's crazy, our world today. And, And so Jesus, he was brutal. He was right in his face. And I tell you what, it's okay to tell people the truth. Jesus told people the truth. He never shied away from people telling people the truth. And he was brutal. And you say, why would Jesus refer to one of his own disciples as Satan? Well, if you read in Matthew 4 about the temptations of Christ, you'll find that Satan had offered to Jesus the very same thing that Peter was suggesting. The devil, you remember this, took him up in a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And then the devil said to Jesus, all these things... Will I give you if you'll fall down and worship me? So there it was. The temptation of a crown that didn't include a cross. Just bypass the process. Go for the heavenly result in an earthly way. And Jesus said, get thee hence, Satan. Get out of here, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now, if you know that story, I want you to listen to the wording of this event from Luke chapter 4. Okay, same event. Jesus answered and said to Satan, Get thee behind me, Satan. Those are the same words that he now used in talking to Peter. Why? Because Peter was being used by the enemy to give Jesus a final temptation not to go to the cross. And if people look at the life of Jesus, and I'll just mention this. People look at at him sweating great drops of blood in the garden and saying, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. And many people... Uh, assume that the cup was the cross and that Jesus didn't want to have to go through the cross. And uh, I believe that 
any right-minded person would not want to go through that experience, right? But you know what Jesus didn't want to go through? What made him not want to follow through, it wasn't the cross and the burden of the cross and the pain of the cross. It was the fact that his father was going to have to turn his back on him. And the first time in eternity, past or future, the Godhead would be split. They wouldn't be at one. And the father would have to forsake the son because he was covered with our sins. And so Jesus said, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He said, Daddy, I don't want to be split with you. I'll go through the pain. I'll go through the torture. I'll go through the suffering. But I don't want to be split with the Father. And, it, and so this temptation now has come up again. And it's Peter's voice, but it's Satan's words. And uh, listen, the devil knew that the only way mankind could ever be redeemed to God was through the death and resurrection of the spotless Lamb of God. And so he offers these words. Go for the crown without the cross. And Peter, who thinks he's just trying his best to help Jesus. Have you ever tried to help Jesus? Right? Like, Jesus, if you made me a size five, that'd be just fine. <laughs> Jesus, if you took care of that guy who keeps bugging me, that'd be fine. Jesus, you see that guy who just ran the stop sign? I don't care if he goes in the ditch. Those are really good Christian motives, right? So we all have a little bit of Peter in us because we all sometimes think that we should advise God on how life is supposed to work. Here's Peter giving Jesus advice, rebuke, on how things are supposed to go down. But sometimes we do the same thing. And if it could happen to Peter, it could happen to us. And I promise it can happen uh, in ways that we never think that we can get our own thoughts and desires confused with what we think are God's desires. And we begin to savor the things of men sometimes without knowing it. And Jesus rebukes it. Now I want to continue in Matthew 16. <clears throat> verse number 24. Then Jesus then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's talk about in this third part of the message, things to lose. Things to lose. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. The closer we get to Christ the less we talk about rights and privileges. The closer we get to Christ, our thinking begins to change from what's right and what's wrong to what's best. Now, Paul said it this way. And stay with me. I blew, just blew some of your minds. Like, there's something different than right and wrong and black and white? Yeah, there's what's best. Right? It would not be wrong for me to drive a pink Cadillac. Well, in some ways, I tell you this, it wouldn't be best, okay? It just wouldn't be best. It wouldn't be a sin. There's nothing sinful about that. 
but it would be definitely not the right move. Okay? And, and so there are things that are right and there's things that are wrong, but there's things that are best. And Paul said it this way to the church at Corinth. He said, all things are lawful for, for me, but not all things are expedient. He says, look, you poor confused Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial to me. Not everything is beneficial to the people around me. Not everything is profitable to God's cause. And so there are plenty of permissible things that I won't do because it's not what's best. That's what Paul's telling them. Now, the church at Corinth is just really uncanny how close he is to, to the world we live in today because it was a very modern cultural center of the world. And many people wanted to try all the ideas that the culture had to offer. And Paul's trying to get him to see it's not about if you can say whether or not it's right or wrong. Right? What people in our culture do, especially Christians, is if they could get one person to sign off on the fact that this isn't a sin, I can do this, then they'll do it. Right? If they get one person they know, even a Facebook friend, to say it's not a sin to do this, they're in. And Paul's trying to teach the church at Corinth, listen, sometimes it's not about what's right and wrong. It's about what's best. And somebody might have done a Bible study with you, gone to that extreme to convince you that it's okay to drink alcohol. Or maybe you've heard a Christian say this, well, I'm a Christian and I do marijuana. Or somebody says there's nothing wrong with going to a strip club as long as your wife thinks it's okay. Or somebody says, Hey, you know, pornography is just something I do in my personal time. It doesn't hurt anyone else. By the way, 40% of men who go to churches just like this one get onto pornography sites at least once a month. It got really, really quiet in church. We're talking about discipleship. Somebody says, when I just get together with my friends, we just like to have a little fun. It's not a big deal. We're not hurting anybody. And Paul says that a true disciple isn't concerned as much about right and wrong as he is about what's best. What's best for my marriage? What's best for my family? What's best for the model of consistency that my children will take away from this home when they leave? What's best for my testimony? What's best for my influence with my future grandchildren? or my current grandchildren? What's best in my life for following Jesus? What's best in my life for preparing for eternity? And people sometimes say to me, Pastor, is there anything wrong with blank? Right, they take an issue. And it could be any issue. Is there anything wrong with this? Biblically, is there anything wrong with this? And what I'm, what I'm telling you is this. It's not always about what's right and wrong. It's about what's best. We have to be willing to deny ourselves and to set aside our rights. See, self-denial doesn't focus on the big M-E. Self-denial focuses on the big J-E-S-U-S. And we have way too many Christians who are focused on the big M-E. In our series that's coming up on The Choice, we have one week that we've called, It's All About Me 
or it's all about God. Because even going to church has become about us. Even worship, where there's supposed to be an audience of one, has become about us. And if we're not careful, we make everything about whether or not I can do this, whether it's permissible to do this, instead of thinking about, how's this going to affect my kid? What's my kid going to grow up thinking? And if my kid grows up thinking that, what's my grandkid going to think about Jesus? And unfortunately, there are so many people whose grandkids never the darken the door of a church and hear about Jesus Christ because when they were bringing up their kids, they did what was permissible instead of what was best. I know this is a hard point. I know it is. And I wouldn't tell you this point if I didn't love you. Before you get upset with me for loving you enough to tell you the truth, could I remind you that if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit has been given to you to guide you into all truth. And the Spirit won't always whisper to you based on right and wrong. He'll whisper to you based on what's best. And maybe there are some things that you've allowed into your life that are weighing you down. Hebrews 12.1 says this. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now sins, just so there's no mistake, sins are things that God has clearly said are wrong. Now by the way, if you thought I was saying pornography is okay, it's wrong. Okay? It is a sexual sin against God. If you thought some of the other things I was saying were okay, what I'm trying to do is give you some examples of how we try to justify what we do because we say, well, it's permissible for me to do this. I can do this. Do you hear the I part of that? We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and so we have to understand sins are these things God clearly said are wrong. But what are weights? He said, lay aside the weights. Here's what weights are. Weights are the good things that aren't the best thing. Most Christians will never be core Christians because they've settled for good when God wants them to have best. And the enemy's greatest trick for those who believe in Jesus is to follow after that which is good instead of that which is best. a tough thing. So instead of saying, Pastor, what are you saying I should deny in my life? Just give me a list. How about this? How about ask the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, what are you saying I should set aside in my life? See, I don't want you to ever be confused. I'm not anybody's Holy Spirit. Okay? I can give you counsel according to God's word, but only the Holy Spirit can show you what's best for each situation and each environment. And when we try to become Holy Spirits for each other, we mess everything up. If we had a Christianity that actually bought into the real Holy Spirit who guides us and shapes us and whispers to us, our lives would be changed. And we wouldn't get hung up on so many stupid things because they're permissible. Now I want to move forward on this next phrase in Matthew 16. 
And a good news for everybody, the message is getting much more joyful right now. Okay? Look what he says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Let's talk about things to gain. We talked about things to lose. How about things to gain? You know, if you've never read the account of Jesus' passion, I encourage you this week to read in Matthew 26 as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was betrayed and arrested, as he was led to the council of Sanhedrin and delivered to Pontius Pilate, the governor, where he was once again interrogated. And the history goes on in Matthew 27 as, as the people cried out for Jesus to be crucified. And the soldiers took Jesus and stripped him and mocked him and put a scarlet robe on him, jammed a crown of thorns into his head to mock him even more and to torture him. They beat him to where he was unrecognizable as a human being and then forced him to carry his own cross down the Via Dolorosa toward the place of the school, Golgotha. Jesus fell under the weight of the cross, and so they forced Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. They hammered spikes into his hands and one into his feet and raised the cross as Jesus gasped for breath. And when you hear the words, take up your cross, it doesn't jive very well with the promises of the prosperity preachers who tell you that the Christian life is going to be all sunshine and butterflies. Mixed in with some marshmallows. Great job, great house, happy, happy, happy. See, when you take up the cross to follow Jesus, you take up pain and persecution and untold burdens. But you also take up joyous fulfillment of the promises Christ has given to those who follow him. You gain much much more than you lose. And if we would set aside M-E and pick up J-E-S-U-S, our lives would change. Our choices would change. Our entertainment would change. The way we invest our time and our money and our effort would change. Look again at Matthew 16. Look at these next verses in verse 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. It's a paradox. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come again in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Remember, as you walk through this discipleship journey, that it's a process. And it does not all happen in one day. You have to stay on the path. Because your direction is what determines your destination. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you. Now think about that. There are the fishers of men's on the end of that. Yeah. Follow me and I will make you. Think about this. 
Jesus gave us the job to follow. It's his job to transform us and to make us into his image. It's his job to shape us into fishers of men. To become an authentic follower of Jesus is to forsake all, follow him. Here's today's big truth. Following Jesus is not for the casual one who constantly seeks self-gratification. We live in such a me-based world. It is really incredible how much self-love there is in our culture. People cry out for people to approve of them in so many different ways. And we buy things to impress people who don't even know us or really like us. We fill our schedules with me-based items and me-based improvements. And following Jesus has to be about him, not us. And that brings us to today's faith challenge and really the point of our entire series. And it's this question, will you deny yourself and take up the cross today? And then again tomorrow. And then again the next day. And when you realize you've messed up, fall on God's mercy and embrace his grace to get back up the next day and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. The disciples brought their ships to land and forsook everything they knew and followed him. I love the story of William Whiting Borden. In the early 1900s, 1903, he was 16 years old and he graduated from a Chicago high school. And he was an heir to the Borden fortune, still a huge fortune even today. And before he began his Ivy League education at Yale, his parents sent him on a trip around the world for his graduation present. This is before the days of planes. You did everything on a slow ship. And earlier in Borden's life, he had come to Christ through the great ministry of D.L. Moody. And while he was on this trip around the world, something happened that no one expected. As he traveled through Asia and Middle East and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. And he wrote a letter to his parents and informed them that he wanted to spend the remainder of his life being a missionary. Well, upon hearing the news, uh, one of his friends remarked that he would be throwing his life away as a missionary. Upon his return, Borden went to Yale University and graduated, and then he studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. And when he finished up his elite Ivy League education, he boarded a ship for China to serve as a missionary. And due to his passion to reach the Muslim people, he stopped in Egypt on his way to learn Arabic. And it was there while he was in Egypt, 25 years old, he contracted spinal meningitis with the month he was dead. And when the news of his death was cabled back to the United States, every American newspaper reported on it. As stated in his biography, a wave of sorrow went around the world. He not only gave up his fortune, but himself to be a missionary. And Borden had walked away from his wealthy fortune uh, to take the gospel of Jesus to the nations of the world. And most people who read about him regarded it as a tragedy. However, God took the tragedy and did something far greater than Borden could ever do himself. 
thousands of young men and women read his story in the newspapers and left everything they had and went to be missionaries all across the world. And when Borden's parents were given his Bible, here's what they found. They found three sets of words in the front of his Bible. At the time when he had renounced his fortune to go to be a missionary, he wrote two words, no reserves. His father, who had told him that he'd always have a job in the company, at a later point told him he could never work for the company again because he'd wasted his fortune. But Borden wrote in his Bible two more words, no retreat. And then they discovered in his Bible these words written in a feeble hand shortly before his death. No regrets. So you ask, was his life a waste? Not from God's perspective. God used his life and his death to call thousands and thousands of young men and women to leave all they had and give their lives to reach the nations with the gospel. God did greater things through Borden's story than he may have ever done with his life in China. And I love those words. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Let's pray together. Just before we pray today, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But maybe God spoke to your heart about something in your life. And there could be commitments that you need to bring before God today. Maybe it's the issue of saying, God, there are some things in my life that I've been focused on whether they're good or they're bad instead of whether they're best. And there are some things in my life that I know are hurting my relationship with you and with my family, with my wife or my husband, with my testimony. Maybe you have never in your life made the commitment to take up your cross and follow him. And listen, I'll tell you this. To be a core disciple of Jesus requires boldness. If you're here this morning and you're physically able and you say, God, I want everything on the altar. I want everything in my life before you. I'm holding nothing back. I'm going to forsake all and follow you. I want you to stand up right now and walk to this altar. Stand up right now and walk to this altar. Let's see how real it is.